All right, well, we are going to, we're kind of kicking off a a sermon series, but it's kind of a continuation of what we have been doing, which was looking at John. All through December, through Advent, we encouraged you all to read a chapter a day of the book of John. Uh, And now we're going to continue in our look at John. And so on Christmas Eve, I preached from the beginning of the Gospel of John. Uh, And today we're going to look at kind of the middle and towards the end of that first chapter. And then over the next two or three months, we're going to be looking uh, at this remarkable gospel. And so with that, let's begin by reading John chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. John writes this, the next day he, and the he here is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. And I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. And he brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we gather this morning. After a soggy Friday and Saturday, we come together as sisters and brothers and we create space even now to be in your presence. So we pray that you would be with us, that we would sense your spirit, that we would see you. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So the reality of the Gospel of John is this. It doesn't get nearly as much attention as what scholars call the synoptic Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, 
and Luke. Uh, there's probably lots of different reasons for this. I don't just think it's because it's the fourth of the Gospels. I, I think sometimes, as I said on Christmas Eve, it's simply because of the fact that it's so much more abstract, you know, uh, remembering Matthew and Luke and their Christmas stories about Jesus, about the baby, about Mary and Joseph. Whereas in John, it begins, of course, with this sense of in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's just harder to hold on to something like that. It's not as easily translated into a children's Bible. It's not as easy to preach on. In fact, I've preached much less on John uh, than I have in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so I'm excited to kind of hopefully come alongside of you all over the next few months and learn alongside of you as we delve into John just a bit more. But before we do so, it's good just to hear a couple of the themes that kind of run in John. As I already said, it tends to be much more symbolic than the other gospels. So I was reminded a bit of, of Ernest Hemingway, you know, who, who I think somewhat arrogantly uh, uh, said that 90% of the meaning of his story was below the surface, right? And so, which is fine, but I think in some ways this is also true with John. Much of the meaning, the symbolism is very much below the surface. And so it's important to kind of read it slowly, to digest it, to see what others are saying about it. Uh, one of the other things about the Gospel of John is that he really wants to include us in the stories. And so um, and sometimes he will do what scholar says. It's a bit like uh, when an actor is up on a stage, if you will. And, and, and while the actor is there and, and doing, uh, doing his part, all of a sudden, maybe you've seen this, he'll kind of step out of character and look out and talk to the audience as if all of a sudden the audience realizes that we know that they're there, right? We know that the, that the, that the actors know you're there and then we'll come back into the story. We'll see this take place a little bit later in this particular passage. But John wants you to know that this isn't just his story. It's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. That this is a story in which you are involved. You can find yourself in the pages of the Gospel of John. And finally, what John really wants at the end of the day is that by the time you have reached the end of this remarkable gospel, that you are convinced that Jesus is God. He wants you to say, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know how God lives, look at Jesus. If you want to know how God loves, look at Jesus. This is a witness. That's what this letter is. It is a witness to who Jesus is, which is why it seems to me the gospel of John, and this gets a little confusing, begins the first real character beyond Jesus in the gospel of John is John, a different John, John the Baptist, hereafter affectionately called JTB. And so JTB uh, is one of the greatest witnesses. I'm not really going to say that the whole time, but maybe a little bit because it gets really long continuing to say this. So John the Baptist, uh, one of the things that he's most known for is the fact that he is always pointing to Jesus. He's always witnessing to who Jesus is as God. And I, I think it's important from time to time for us to kind of relook at John the Baptist. One of the things I'm convinced of is that when we learn something as a child, oftentimes our understanding of that particular thing 
stays as it did when we were children. And this is definitely so for someone like John the Baptist, because John the Baptist is someone that kids love. But what do most of us remember when it comes to John the Baptist? We remember that he wore camel's hair. We remember that he ate bugs. I mean, that's just weird, right? And so we remember those things, or maybe we remember pictures, right? I have a couple pictures here that I saw of John, like this, right? I mean, just kind of crazy, right? Crazy person. Or this picture here, uh, uh, where John the Baptist not only looks crazy, but he has remarkably sculpted calves. And so <laughs> clearly John the Baptist worked out, right? But this is, this is the kind, usually these are the kinds of people that you're like, kids, stay away from this person. And so so John the Baptist then, oftentimes we kind of see him as that, and it can become very distracting for our understanding of the significance and the depth of John the Baptist. So I think it's important then for us to take another look at him. And, and one of the things about the Gospel of John is he never includes those things like camel's hair or that he ate bugs or anything like that. Perhaps he knew what a distraction would be. So what do we, what do we learn about John the Baptist in this Passage. Well, the first thing it seems to me that we learn, I'll, I'll be honest, this is incredibly selfish, uh, this first one, but I'm going to say it anyways, it's very self-serving, is this. John the Baptist gives permission for me and for people of my ilk to be able to be loud and passionate about Jesus Christ in the middle of a large people or in front of a large amount of people. Because there's no question that this is who John the Baptist is, right? The very, uh, verse 29, we see John the Baptist. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at it. Even in your translation, there's an exclamation point. And when there's an exclamation point, as we learn, it does not mean that he says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No, no, no. There's a certain amount of energy, right? And then later in verse 36, again, he says, look, right? Jesus was walking by and he says to his own disciples, look, here is the Lamb of God. He's excited about who Jesus is as the Lamb of God. Now, here's the thing. John himself understood who he was. Earlier in the passage, just a few verses before this, there's a group of people who want to know who is John the Baptist? Who is this JTB they've been hearing so much about? And so John describes himself. And he says, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. Right? I asked our good friend Stan, well, in the Greek, what does that mean? And he says, well, that sense of crying here is, an, is, is crying out of, out of anguish, out of a need for help. And if you are in the wilderness and you are crying out of anguish or you are desperate for help, you are not saying, help, thirsty. No, you are yelling, help. Here, look. I love the way that Eugene Peterson kind of captures this. He translates this particular portion. He says that John the Baptist says, I am thunder in the desert. It's like a wrestler's name right there. I am thunder in the desert. How awesome. What kind of, what a great imagery, right? I am thunder in the desert. So one of the great things about this is if you are somebody who for the longest time you have always been accused of being really, really loud, 
That may have been, that may have been, I may have been accused of that once or twice when I was growing up. If you are accused of being loud and at times you are accused about talking about Jesus in way too loud of a way, I want you to know you can tell them to pipe it because John the Baptist is right there and you can say, you can be who you want to be, but as for me and my house, we are JTB. We are thunder in the desert. Thank you. <laughs> now, I want to say something. I want to take this as a moment of a point of personal privilege, which is to this, and I mean this. I want to thank you all for allowing me to be loud and to be passionate and to be excited about who Jesus is and the difference that Jesus can make. I know it is not the Presbyterian way. I am fully understanding. In fact, about a year into my time here, I had a pastoral colleague and friend say, well, how are things going? And I said, well, well, amazingly enough, you know, people are still here. And, 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 and what I was really talking about was the fact that, because I was nervous about this, I think the pastor nominating committee was nervous about this, that my style, while so loud, that it may have caused everyone to leave. And, and here's, here's the thing. The truth is, I, I know that I am an acquired taste. And yes, there are people, I mean, there are people who've left because they feel like I was like yelling at them all the time. And I get it. I, I totally do. I probably wouldn't like it either. But here's the thing. I am so excited about who Jesus is. And I have seen Jesus work in so many remarkable ways. And I think he can make such a difference that I will be doggone if in my own character and who I am, I can't stop. I can't be excited as I get about, the, about whatever football team or basketball team. I get excited. I get loud. If you want me to watch a football game like I'm in the library, it's not going to happen. But I'll be doggone then if I don't exchange that and say I'm even more excited about who Jesus Christ is. Now, to be sure, that's just my personality. There are other people who have very different personalities, and that is wonderful. There are people who are contemplatives, and that is great. Sue Armstrong, if you were here in July, she stood up here. She preached. She's much more contemplative, much quieter, but she preached a phenomenal sermon. And that is great. We need all of those different kinds of voices. I'm just saying. That if you're loud and passionate, JTB is your patron saint and you have found a fellow yeller and you can be thunder in the desert and you need not apologize. Okay, second thing I want us to hear about John the Baptist is this. Not only do we see that we can be passionate and excited about Jesus and it's okay. The second thing it seems to me that I want us to see here is also comes kind of or, or begins earlier than this particular passage. All those folks are there. They want to understand who are you, John the Baptist. And so they, they come to him. They've been sent by the Pharisees, actually. And they say, well, who are you? Are you, a, are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? Even are you Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And John, again, what he's so well known for, he was so deferential. No, 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 no. I no no it's somebody else it is not me he was always pointing to Jesus right again he yells it he's so passionate even when his disciples remember two of his disciples 
left him immediately to go follow Jesus. There's no sense of, hey, wait, no. No, no, no. He is excited for them. He is always differential. In fact, some of the famous paintings of John the Baptist, they almost, they have a very similar trait. We can see that here. You see John the Baptist and what is he doing? He's pointing. Right? What's this next one here? You can see it again. There he is, and he's pointing. This last one's by Leonardo da Vinci. And what is he doing? He's pointing. All of this, he is so well known for the fact that he was always pointing to Jesus. There was a certain humility that he had, which was beautiful. But now here's the thing that I hadn't really thought that much of until this week. Which is that while he was always doing that, we should be very aware that John the Baptist in his own right was incredibly gifted. I mean, he had some amazing gifts and he didn't just kind of, he didn't, he didn't act like those were no big deal so that he could just point to Jesus. No, no, he lived into them. Fred Craddock asked this question or he said this this week. He said, no one asks a powerless preacher, are you the Messiah? No, no, no. They could tell that there was something different about John the Baptist. This guy had some gifts. He was quite the orator. He was quite influential. He had a ton of power. I mean, he had these people. The Pharisees were nervous. That's why they sent people. He was really good. And he embraced that. At the same time, he was always pointing to Jesus. He held both of those things in this tension that we don't always embrace. Usually we think it has to be one or the other. You guys know that I love Eugene Peterson. I bring him up with some regularity. I've already brought him up today. And uh, Eugene Peterson uh, um, is, is a remarkable guy, very, very talented. Um, he's passed, he passed away about a year or two ago now, probably even two years ago now. And he was a Presbyterian pastor that's neither here nor there, but it's true, and you should know that. And, um, and he was a pastor for about 30 years um, at a little church, in, 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 and that wasn't little, but in Bel Air, Maryland. And, and, and he, um, he wrote or he translated, paraphrased, however you want to describe it, the message. Um, but before he did that, he wrote a bunch of pastor books. So, so no normal people knew about Eugene Peterson because it was just for pastors. And so, and so you know, I was, I was familiar with him, but he decided he was going to start translating or paraphrasing some of the scripture based out of a Sunday school. I think they were dealing with the book of Ephesians. And so uh, he realized that the people there just didn't care that much in the Sunday school. And so they were kind of bored. And, and so he began to put it in his own vernacular, right? And, and it really began to change things. And so a little bit of it got published, not the whole thing because he hadn't finished it. And all of a sudden his notoriety began to grow and, and, and people began to get to know him. And so he had, he had retired and he was still working on the message and he was at Regent where he was teaching, uh, which is in Vancouver and in, in British Columbia. And he gets a phone call one day and it's a phone call from the personal chaplain of Bono, the lead singer for U2, right? And uh, first of all, I just want to say, if you've ever thought maybe you would like to have a personal chaplain, I would love to do that for you. So <laughs> Um, just, just think about it. And so, um, so anyway, so, so, you know, the personal, you know, the chaplain of Bono. And so he calls Eugene Peterson and he's like, Hey, Bono's in Chicago. Cause you only, you only need one name if you're that cool. And so Bono's in Chicago. Uh, and he would love for you to fly out to Chicago and just be with him for a couple days, you know? And, and, and Peterson was like, mm, I'd love to, uh, but I'm working on a deadline right now for the message. And I just can't, I can't make it. And, and, and I was watching, uh, several years ago, I was watching this, uh, this interviewer. Uh, his name was Dean something, I don't know. And he couldn't believe 
that Eugene Peterson did not just drop everything that he was doing. I mean, it's like two days to go to Chicago to be with Bono. He was incredulous. And he was like, what? He's like, this is Bono. And Eugene Peterson looked at him and he said, but Dean, this was Isaiah. And I thought, wow, this is this fascinating sense, right, that, that he was so in love with what he was doing with Scripture, with Isaiah, that it did not matter to him that it was Bono because he was so enthralled with this. He was not concerned about what was popular over here. He just was enthralled by the Scripture. And then a year or so ago, I was at a Fellowship of Presbyterians conference and a, a, a pastoral colleague, friend of mine named Dan Baumgartner, got to know Eugene Peterson. He would go and hang out with them. And, and so he said, he, he asked Eugene Peterson one day, why did you only stay at Regent for five years? Because he only taught for five years. They thought he was going to be there for many years. And he said, well, here's the thing. He said, he goes, um, uh, you know, I had fully published the message and so many people were, knew who I was, were reaching out. I could just feel in my soul, basically, that I was not reflecting Jesus any longer. I could just feel that this was beginning to have too much of an impact on me. And so he left. He went back to where he grew up in this small, rural, mountainous town in Montana because of the fact that he did not want that to shape him in a way that did not look like Jesus. And when I heard that, I thought, man, that is crazy. Like how many of us, myself included, if all of a sudden just about the time you started to get known, right, what would you be thinking? I would be like, well, it is about time. I have been waiting decades for people to discover how incredible I am, right? I'm thunder, right? This is about time, right? But not Peterson, right? Peterson's like, no, no, I can't. That's, that's not going to be good for me. And so he left. And see, this is what I love about Peterson. He used his incredible skills, Greek and Hebrew, and kind of putting this into a language that we could understand. He, he used all of those gifts, but at the same time, he was always pointing to Jesus. What I want you to hear this morning when it comes to this is this. I think far too often we in the church, we, we almost, whether explicitly or implicitly, we, we encourage you to kind of, you know, play down your gifts. No, 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 it's not that big of a deal. No, 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 don't get, don't get arrogant. Don't act like you, you got that much. Uh, just, just, just look over here to Jesus. And we certainly should be pointing to Jesus. But I want you to know, I also think that you should be living within those incredible gifts to which God has given you. And then be asking the question, not how do I play those down, but how do I use those to point to Jesus? Right? So if you're a, a hairstylist and you, you cut hair and it's what you're really good at, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cut hair and then I want you to, I want you to be able to see the beauty of the creation, just like the creation of God and what you're doing. And I want you to take that time when you're with that customer, and I want you to be asking, in what ways can I point to Jesus as I listen, as I care, as I love this person? If you're an accountant and you love numbers for some reason, and you think this is incredible, I love numbers, I can't get enough numbers, 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 numbers. I want you to be able to see those numbers, right, and be able to point to God and be like, wow, this is beautiful how these numbers work. I want that to be an opportunity for you to point to God and then maybe to think about people who aren't good with numbers, who struggle with budgeting or finances and say, how can I use these gifts in order to point you to God? If you're really good at making money, and I'm, I'm, I'm convinced making money is a gift from God, just like singing in the choir or whatnot, that's fine. You can be good at making money. You don't need to play it down like, well, I'm not very good. No, that's great. But figure out how do I use this? And through the ways in which I am incredibly extravagantly generous, how do I then point to Jesus? It doesn't matter what it is. My point is this, whatever it is, 
Don't put away the stethoscope. Don't put away the legal pad. Don't put away the cutting shears. Don't put away the calculator. Bring all of those things to God and always be asking the question, how do these things help me point to Jesus? Because whatever gifts you have, I promise you, they can be used to glorify the Almighty, just like John the Baptist. Now, the last thing I want us to think about this morning Also, well, no, the last thing I want us to think about is the fact that John the Baptist, and this is a wee bit speculative, I will admit, but I'll tell you why I'm speculating like this. John the Baptist says something very interesting. He says it twice in our passage. He says this, he says, he says, he acts as if he says, I didn't know the Messiah, that he didn't see that Jesus was the Messiah, that he didn't see that Jesus was was Lord. Dale Bruner, I like the way that he interprets it. He says that he didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. Now, this is all a little bit strange because, of course, one of the first people that Jesus ever met was John the Baptist. I mean, you remember the story? There's uh, Mary, as soon as she gets pregnant, right, with Jesus, she runs to go see Elizabeth. And Elizabeth has within her a baby. And who is the baby? John the Baptist. And John the Baptist leaps, right, when they, when they meet each other, right? So, so they were cousins. And, and the odds are incredibly good, it seems to me, that especially in that time and place when family was so important, that these two cousins very much more than likely knew each other Right, that they went to trips to Jerusalem together. They pilgrimaged to Jerusalem. They were together for holidays. These same sorts of things that they knew each other. And so actually what's being said here is that he recognized, he had not recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. And this really kind of makes sense. I mean, think about this. Think about cousins that you grew up with. What do you do with those cousins? You do ridiculous things. You give them noogies, right? You can see John the Baptist being like, oh, there's Jesus, goody two-shoes. And you can just see all of these sorts of things. These are things that cousins do. And and in fact, I think this is the same kind of phenomenon we see with Jesus in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, where he says that a prophet is never welcomed in his hometown. Why? Well, because when you've wiped the little snotty nose of a little four-year-old, it's really hard to begin to think, oh, there's the Lord and Savior. Think about your cousins, is there any cousin that you grew up with where you were like, oh, yeah, if he came to me right now and said, there, I'm the Messiah, you'd be like, yeah? You'd be like, no, you're not. You're a little Johnny, a little snot-nosed Johnny. I can assure you none of your cousins think that you are the Messiah. <laughs> it seems to me that there is a struggle. There would have been a struggle for John the Baptist to have understood Jesus as Messiah and as Lord because of the simple fact that he grew up with him. And what I want to suggest this morning is it also seems to me that for those of us who have grown up with Jesus, so to speak, those of us especially who grew up going to church religiously every Sunday, that oftentimes there is a struggle that we have to see Jesus as Messiah and Lord. In other words, I think oftentimes those of us, myself included, I've seen it in my life, I've seen it in many others' lives of those who grew up in the church, that, they are, that, that these are people for whom they played board games with Jesus and had Jesus as a part of their board game, not seeing Jesus as 
Lord. You see Jesus as cousin. See, and that's the thing. Cousin Jesus is the Jesus you play games with. It's not the one who forgives your sins. Cousin Jesus is not usually the one who's challenging you to change your life and be shaped more like him. No, cousin Jesus is the one you play tag with. Cousin Jesus is somebody you grew up with so much that you're incredibly comfortable with him, but that also means that oftentimes you forget he's even there. Now you may be saying, well, I don't know. Is that really true? Here's an indicator, it seems to me, as to whether or not you have grown so comfortable with this Jesus that he has become cousin Jesus and not Christ Jesus. And that is, how do you respond when you're in the presence of somebody who just met Jesus or has just been renewed with Jesus for the first time and is on fire? What is that like for you? What's it like when someone's like, oh my goodness, I have just met Jesus. I'm telling you, he has changed my life. I was over here, things were horrible, and now all of a sudden, everything begins to make sense. I am on fire for Jesus. How do you respond? I'll tell you how sometimes we respond, which is like, hey, whoa, settle down. It's just cousin Jesus here. Or how about those when as soon as they become on fire with Jesus because all of a sudden Jesus means something new to them and they're really excited about it and they can't stop telling people about it, right? This is what Andrew does. Andrew, as soon as he, as soon as he meets Jesus, right, what does he do? He goes and tells Simon. People who are alive with Jesus, they want to tell other people about it, right? So he goes and tells Simon, hey, you got to come, right? Well, what about that person that you meet, right? And you're, you're having lunch with this person. Like, oh, great, you know, Jesus is clearly on fire. And the waiter comes up and all of a sudden, you know, this person wants to talk to the waiter about, about Jesus or the next person about Jesus, right? And if you've grown up in the church, you know, you're just kind of like, come on, shh, this is not the place. It's kind of embarrassing, right? This is just, this is cousin Jesus, just relax. Or, or you sit there and you have a conversation with somebody who's on fire for Jesus and they're, they're just, Jesus has changed their life. And they're like, oh, and I saw Jesus here. And then I saw Jesus working over here. It was incredible. And you, all of a sudden you begin to wonder, well, man, I have, where did I put that cousin Jesus? I don't say this to shame those of us who grew up in the church or knowing Jesus, but I do say it as a way of saying that we have to be aware that the longer you follow Jesus, oftentimes the more comfortable you get with him. And sometimes we can grow so comfortable with cousin Jesus that we no longer allow him to be Lord and Savior. We no longer allow him to challenge us. We no longer see him because he's grown so comfortable that he just falls off into the background. So how do we make sure that we don't be too comfortable, that we don't make Jesus into our cousin rather than our Christ. One of the things, as I said, is simply to be around him, to be around people who have just met him. One of the things I love about ZPC is the fact, more than any other church I've been a part of, this church is committed to helping people meet Jesus and to helping people be renewed in Jesus. On Friday night, um, I was with my kids, and uh, I was putting them to bed, and we said our prayers. I have to say that so you guys, you know, think I'm a good father. And so, uh, but I, I, we really do. We said our prayers, and our girls were asking, well, where's mom? Where's mom? I said, well, mom's, you know, mom's at, you know, mom's at the church, and, you know, uh, they knew she wasn't going to be there. She didn't know exactly where, and so, so she's at the church. Well, why is she at church? Well, she's doing this awakening thing. Well, what's, what's that? Well, she's, you know, she's on the leadership team, and, you know, awakening is this time, you know, for teenagers or for, for high school uh, uh, boys and girls, for high schoolers, and, and, and they kind of help 
them to, to know about Jesus and they help to, you know, kind of all those sorts of things. And, and so one of my daughters said, well, when we, you know, when we get in high school, can we go? And so I got a little dizzy as I thought about them being in high school. And then, you know, and I said, well, sure. And as I said that, I realized how exciting it is that we are a part of a church who takes it so serious that we can't wait to let other people know about this Jesus. And here's where it strengthens us as a body. Because when you are surrounded by people who get on fire for Jesus, it always encourages us and challenges those of us who have grown up with cousin Jesus to say, is Jesus as alive in my life as it is in his life, as it is in her life? And it is always challenging us to say, is Jesus really Lord, or is he just cousin or friend? The last thing it seems to me that we can do, we can do many other things, but the last thing I want to point out in terms of challenging us from becoming too comfortable with Jesus is to take seriously the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of John. You heard it. I don't know if you remember it. It wasn't a statement. It was a question. The two disciples of John's begin to follow Jesus. Jesus turns around and he says this to them. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? And this is one of those places where scholars say it is like John is actually coming out of character. And he is looking into each of our faces. And he is saying to you, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Aubrey West says that this is an incredibly critical question because it shapes us. It shapes what you find based off of what you're looking for. It shapes the journey it takes for you to find that. All those things are true and right. If you aren't looking for Jesus, then you should not be surprised that you do not find him. If you are not looking for ways to use your gifts and talents to point to Jesus, you should not be surprised if you don't find him. But here's where I'm concerned. My concern is not with how you answer that question. My concern, if I can be so honest, is that we may not even be asking that question. And the reason why I'm afraid that we may not be asking that question is not because we're trying to be willfully negligent. You guys know this because I've talked about this before, but I'm becoming even more convinced of it in my own life and in the life of so many of us which is that we are just far too much in a hurry to be able to stop to ask that question. You see, the question of what are you looking for is contingent upon us slowing down to begin to look. Think about this. If you are driving fast, and I love to drive fast, if you are driving fast, let's just say you're driving 85. You shouldn't if that's not the speed limit. Where is my daughter? But I'm just saying you shouldn't. But if you are, do you know what's happening? If you're driving that fast, you know what you're not doing? You're not looking this way. You are looking forward, and you're looking really far forward. You're not asking, what is it that's right here? You're saying, what's coming next? And what I want to suggest, and this is something you all know is true, is that when you are running from one activity to the next, 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 all you're doing is asking, what is next? You're not asking, what is it right now that I am looking for? 
And the phrase that I have borrowed from somebody else that I'm going to continue to use that you may have heard me use before is are we, can we move from being from unconscious busyness? Because when you are busy, it is always unconscious because you are trying to get everything done and you are thinking about what's next in line. Can we move from being unconsciously busy to to conscious habitation? Which means simply being present right where you are. And only when you are present right where you are can you hear Jesus' question of what are you looking for? John does this peculiar thing in this passage he tells us for some reason that all of this happened at four o'clock. We don't know why. People have theories. They're all wrong. I know why, but I'm not telling anyone. It doesn't matter why. But here is what I want to do. This week, at four o'clock, I want you either to set your alarm or you can shoot this text. Look, if you're already a part of it, you don't have to do it. And every day at 4 o'clock, you will receive a text that has that very simple question. What are you looking for? And I love that it comes at the end of the day. At the end of the work day, once the kids have returned from school, whatever it may be for you. So that you can then ask the question, as I lived through this day, did I ask this question at all? Or did I just run from one thing to the next? Did I see Jesus at all? Was I looking for him all day? Did I ever ask a question of whether or not I had grown so comfortable with Jesus that he had become cousin Jesus and he hadn't challenged me at all today? Have I asked a question at all? Have I looked for ways that God can use my talents to point to Jesus? I want us to wrestle with that this week and prayerfully in the weeks to come. You see, I think that if we begin to ask that question, it will change the way we see, it will change the way we love, it will change the way we live. What are you looking for? Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, we know that you are here, and yet we also know that we are oftentimes blinded to you. And so I pray that you would be with us even now, that all week, that you would force us, that you would impel us to ask, what are we looking for? Are we looking for you? Or are we just asking what's next? It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.